Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. It's nice to uh, have spent so much time this week with so many of you in this room. Uh, especially uh, Sunday. Um, Sunday we spent at U of T um, exploring for a whole day together how we can take care of ourselves and how taking care of ourselves can extend out uh, into taking care of our uh, earth and our neighborhoods and our city, and um, it was a very inspiring day for me, and um, I hope we planted some seeds that were, or that will be helpful. I'm still... Sitting. Sometimes after sitting, it's hard to to speak. And things come to my mind, and then just as I'm ready to say them, they float off. <laughs> and, then, and I mean, this is what we're doing. I think in our sitting practice, really, is we're nourishing um, that fresh mind, nourishing beginner's mind, and uh, like any of you. Uh, who sit or have any kind of practice, whether it's a practice of composing music or making film or writing or designing or um, walking into uh, a room of people who are are ill. Um, This is what we're cultivating uh, through this practice, is we're becoming peacemakers uh, internally, um, bringing back into intimate connection all the parts of ourselves and this body And doing the same thing, hopefully, in our families, and with our friends, and with our neighborhood. And if you can't do it in your neighborhood, hopefully you're doing it in someone else's neighborhood. If you can't do it with your own family, hopefully you can do it with other families. Um, That's the way it goes. And... um, and what happens over time with this practice is it also starts to create some uh, um, immediacy with what's happening that's unmediated. Um, whether it's immediacy with boredom, 
or immediacy with uh, frustration, um, or even immediacy with joy. And, um, and with immediacy comes also fearlessness, so that we can really open to all the corners and cracks of our lives and our culture and our city uh, without so much fear. And uh, some of you know that uh, October 18th, we're bringing some monks here from Burma uh, who helped uh, initiate the Saffron Revolution in September 2007. And um, you know on the third day of that protest that at nighttime, the, after the first you know, strong street presence, in the cover of night, the military came to the monasteries and started beating and arresting monks. I think that first night, something like 350 monks went missing. And um, so the next day, uh, the streets were quiet, and everybody thought it was like 1988, and you know that was the end of the demonstration. And um, once the monks were beaten, I mean... Some of you even saw the pictures, I think, of people in this room in the G8 uh, protests just sitting in front of the police every morning um, down there doing nothing. And some days feeling really connected to their mission of being still in the face of the military. Some days feeling totally scared. Some day, sometimes having no idea why they were going down there in the morning to sit. And you can imagine this in Burma with a military regime where the day before they had beaten monks who were in the streets barefoot, wearing robes, chanting the Metta Sutta, reworked, lo wishing loving kindness to the military. And then that morning, uh, with nobody in the streets, out of the monasteries come the monks, 150,000 of them. Um, marching through the street, um, unarmed in their robes. And if, if you ever see the pictures or some of the video of this, um, the fearlessness on their face says, was astounding. And where did it come from? It didn't necessarily come from years and years of sitting meditation. Maybe the discipline of nonviolence did. But they were there chanting loving kindness towards the military. It's really amazing. Um, and I think we love to tell political stories like this, you know, but we also know that what happened is they were shut down, many killed, um, thanks to groups like Amnesty International. Some of them are here having a very hard time. Um, but what about that same kind of fearlessness inside of us? You know? And I think those of us, even who do activist work, sometimes it's easier to go out there and fight, um, even in a nonviolent way, than to do that in, in here. To actually be in a room like this and really be still um, is a kind of peacemaking. It's, it's you know, in, Trungpa Rinpoche called it being a warrior, you know, to... You know, and I don't like using the warrior language as much. It doesn't resonate as much with me. But I, I like this idea of being a peacemaker, you know. And um, I think this is really helpful for all of us. And 
you know, at center of gravity, as many of you know, we're, we're growing and lots of things are happening. And at the same time, to also remember that, that with growth and, you know, new people and so on, there, there's a core of, of people here who, who have a committed practice to really uh, trying to wake up from the habits that ensnare them. Um, and then from that, we all can, you know, learn this skill of um, having a more unmediated relationship with our lives. And um, when I look around and I see some of you and hear what you're doing and see how committed you are to your practice, it's so inspiring. Yeah. And, uh, and the commitment to your lives and to serving other lives. Not going into the world and trying to fix it. But which is a good recipe for burnout, which we explored on Sunday. Um, but going into the world and really knowing how to serve. And um, because we've grown, we decided to make a little brochure, which looks like this. And um, I don't know, where is Carmen here? How many did we print? 120. 120, and they're gone in a week? Well, there, there are about 65 people here. Okay. <laughs> well, there were last week, too, so yeah. there you go. Um, are there any left up there on the... If you don't have one, uh, even just look through it. Even if you're not going to take it, look through it. And um, Carmen designed this, and Keo, who's not here tonight, uh, helped write it. And um, I promised last week and this week we would go through this brochure. And... Um, Next week, we're going to study the, the fire sermon, which is the Buddha's teaching on craving. And then we're going to go back to the Yoga Sutra line by line for the next two years. <laughs> what well, could be more exciting? Um, so I went through this in detail last week. And, and what we talked about last week was meetings and, and, and making sure that at the core of your practice, there is relationship. And there is relationship between people in this room, and that there are relationships being cultivated between uh, people who are practicing here and students who are committed, who are slowly starting to teach, and who are also starting to find uh, more and more ways to support you in your practice. Um, uh, Monica's in Scotland. Simone's not here tonight, but Pat is here. And Angela is here, and Ronit is hiding over there. And um, uh, their bios are all in here. You can know everything you need to know about them from this, this bio. And all that is also going to be online soon. Petra? I just want to say I tried calling Simone, and that phone number was fine. Okay, try emailing. Yeah, I haven't had a chance. Okay. Or ask Ronit, and she can help you. Get in touch with her. Yeah. And um, these days, when uh, uh, studying, especially in the yoga world, but I'd say this is happening in the Buddhist world too, uh, is becoming so anonymous, where you can drop in and take workshops and quick retreats. And it's really important for you to know that the core of practitioners here at this place are here also to support new people who are coming. And um, we're finding ways we can do that without being tight and without having levels 
and too much hierarchy. <laughs> and um, this is an experiment. And will it work? I don't know. But we're going to try it. And we're going to see if uh, what we can do is make sure that uh, all of us who are practicing here are really practicing. And that you're not coming and saying, I study at center of gravity and you're making up your own practice. That's the only rule, really, is to make sure that there's a relationship happening where when you say, I have a practice, that there's really something going on there. And, and you're working with someone to help cultivate a practice, um, which includes, as we've talked here, three stages. Um, initiating, establishing, and deepening. Do you remember this from, from last week? Do, you can hand these out. There's some up there if you want to pass them around. They, yeah, uh-huh. Um, initiating was really simple. Two suggestions. Number one, come Tuesday evenings. And not only that, uh, hopefully if some plans are in place that we're, we're working on right now, there will be more than just Tuesday evening where you can come and practice. Um, the goal, for example, uh, by the summer is to have a sitting meditation every single morning of the week where you can come here in the snow uh, and, and sit. Um, second, uh, online, there is an archive of so much information. There are talks. We put new talks up every few weeks. Um, my talks, guest teachers' talks, listen to them. Listen to them. And it's a way where you can feel connected. And then you can know all the jokes. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And, and read. We really encourage reading, but reading within the framework of what we're practicing. So if you need suggestions for reading, there's a few names here. You can start Stephen Batchelor, Robert Aitken, Chip Hartranft, David Loy, and conveniently, my book's for sale. Um, and uh, so is Richard Freeman's new book up there. So is Stephen Batchelor's new book up there. And, and you can purchase those and, um, and read really encourage reading. Yeah. Establishing, uh, committing to a daily sitting for a period of either 30 or 45 minutes, which I went into detail explaining last week of how to do that. Uh, meditating on sound, on the breath, every day, and trusting in your timer. <laughs> Putting all your trust in your timer. Um, so that when stuff arises... Um, you have the container of time to really open to it and to learn how to really trust yourself and how to cultivate in yourself that place of non-reactivity out of which you can really meet uh, what shows up, including happiness. <laughs> you know, most of you are wearing black and are artists. And, like, we're not so good at opening to happiness unless we get a grant or whatever. <laughs> or we're around grant. <laughs> they say Matthew Ricard's the happiest person on earth, but I think if they measured grant, it'd be getting close. Um, I just like sitting near him, usually. 
Um, attend weekly meditation sessions, Dharma talks at Center of Gravity. Participate in a one-day sitting with any of the groups related to Center of Gravity. As I went through last week, there are three groups of clinicians that meet. So if you're a clinician and you want to meet other clinicians and sit with them, we can tell you how to do that. Um, there's the Dharma Salon, Jeff. Um, Rami's not here, but Jeff can tell you about the Dharma Salon. You can go right up to him afterwards where they meet, they, they study some of what we're studying, they talk about it, they discuss it, they debate it, they fight with each other, <laughs> then they make up, make each other food, and they also have uh, a sitting often. And then the group, the five people who are listed here who you can do your interviews with, uh, we're planning that they're also going to lead a one-day meditation sometime in the next few months, so you can get to know their teaching also. And... Um, I assume that's in the works. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, practicing the yoga postures and the pranayama practices we're doing here at least four days a week. Four days a week. If you don't feel you have a time to sit every day and to do an asana practice every day, throw out your television. <laughs> And stop working on Facebook and Twitter and whatever these things are. And get your priorities straight. <laughs> um, last, deepening. Um, attending one silent meditation retreat a year with me and one workshop a year with me. Attend one retreat or course a year with a visiting teacher. Um, uh, I think the next the next uh, uh, weekend we have with a visiting teacher is um, February 25th, 26th, and 27th. It's not for a little while with Enkyo Roshi, who's coming to visit from um, Manhattan. And thank you to Andrea for making the posters tonight uh, for this. You can come get one. Uh, bless you. Um, make time to volunteer. Um, there are so many things you can do to volunteer. For example, John. John? There he is. You might have enough volunteers already. But John has 10 volunteers already to help with the Burma event in October. Um, and if you need more volunteering uh, jobs, just let me know. Because we have so many. And uh, it's a great way to participate. And it's a good way to meet other people. Um, and the interviews I covered uh, yesterday, uh, last Tuesday. <laughs> um, any questions before I keep going? Yes. Is the February retreat, is that a formal Zen retreat? Yes and no. It, it's a, it's a three, three, three days. And we'll be doing sitting and walking meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, Enkyo is going to teach during that time about the form. So if you don't know when to bow and what to do with what bell, don't worry about it. She'll teach you that from scratch. And, um, and she's going to be using the great uh, um, uh, poets in her lineage to do her teaching. So for those of you who are a little bit interested in sitting, but you're really interested in poetry, this would be a really good 
really good workshop to take. Yeah. Um, any other comments or questions? Yes, Maybe Jeff. I, I just add, um, if anybody signed up for the Dharma Salon list already and hasn't received an email, um, maybe I didn't get it down right, or maybe it wound up in your spam or something, because messages have already gone out. So just let me know if, if you haven't gotten a message. Um, in order to do this practice, we need a framework, I think. And um, the framework that Patanjali offers is really inspiring. It's uh, eight limbs, um, which, uh, I mean, it's helpful to think of an octopus, um, but it's also helpful to think of a mala or, or, or a, a, um, uh, a necklace or a garland of flowers or beads. And to think of each bead as an essential part of the whole mandala. And um, the, the way Patanjali teaches is the eight limbs are like a circle. And one never finishes a limb. So although a lot of commentators have uh, taken the eight limbs and made them into like a ladder, um, I think this is really an unhelpful way of thinking, this kind of linear developmental model of thinking about spiritual practice. Uh, but it's really good for your ego. So uh, it's a phase you'll get into, whether you like it or not, uh, of, of trying to get somewhere. Um, but it, his model is really simple, and it begins with uh, the yamas, which are listed in the back of your book here, um, which are essentially commitments to nonviolence. And the way I've been translating uh, ahimsa lately is not so much nonviolence, but not living at the expense of other life, not living at the expense of the life of other creatures, all other creatures. And let's not be limited to what a creature is either. You know, in Thailand, there is this controversial uh, process happening right now where the monks, the head monks, are, or, are, are giving full ordination ceremonies to trees. So uh, they have a full priest ordination ceremony to old growth trees in Thailand. And they're traveling all over Thailand and doing these ordination ceremonies where the tree becomes a full priest. And then they wrap saffron robes around the uh, tree. And then anybody who walks by the tree has to stop and bow down to the tree. Because not only is it a sentient being, he or she is a priest. And so when people are rushing by, they see the robe and they stop and they bow and then they keep going. And it's hard to cut down a priest. I mean, they did it in Burma, but um, it's hard to... to, to um, I mean, I don't know if kids are climbing them still or what, but, um, you know, can we do this? Can we do this here? That would be awesome. You know, I mean, we don't need to ordain trees necessarily, but there are a lot of creatures in our city that needs protection, you know. Um, so to be as creative as they are in Thailand, and this is controversial in Thailand, you know, people are very, you know, not everyone's happy about this. You know? But I think this is another example of fearlessness, is to say, you know, I'm also going to include the tree. 
and I'm not going to live at the expense of a tree. I think now this is what deep ecologists are trying to work out in this idea, this uh, idea of um, ecological debt, you know, and really being aware of the debt that we're in ecologically um, through uh, our consumption patterns and also internally to see the effect of our actions in our nervous system, in tissue, in fascia, in our relationships, in the way we communicate in the way we gaze, in the way we turn our eyes away, in what we can face, in what we won't face, in what we can accept, and what we won't allow. Or even when I walk down the road, what I like to look at and what I won't look at. Or who I like to look at and who I won't look at. Um, we all do this. And that's why our practicing is nourishing this, this space in us where we can really become close to what's going on right in front of our eyes and then to do something about it. So the interesting thing about this first mala or this first bead um, of ahimsa, which is called yama, um, is a commitment to our relational life. And over the next few weeks I'm going to go into this in more detail. But the first limb is characterized by nonviolence. The second limb is characterized by santosha, or contentment. A commitment to contentment. I like to translate dukkha these days as the inability to be content. The inability to be content. And not only that, but the way we feed everything that supports or reinforces our inability to be content. And then when we do have a moment of contentment, we have no idea what to do with it. What the hell is this? It's like a potato that's hot or whatever. I I don't know where that hot potato thing came. If you can find out the etymology of this phrase, then um, we'll give you a little gift next week. Hot potato. and it doesn't matter which bead you enter. You know, there, there, there's a, a, a phrase that you hear a lot in the Buddhist world that there are 84,000 dharma doors. So there are 84,000 ways of waking up to the dharma or to the way things are. And you only have to enter one. And this is the same is true with these eight limbs. There are eight limbs, and you only have to enter one deeply, and then you see the other seven. But you still have to practice the other seven. It's not just, oh, I see them over there. <laughs> I like the nonviolence thing, but I don't really want to go sit down. So the second is contentment. The third is asana, um, which I'm going to loosely translate now, of, of sitting with um, the truth of our body and waking up the intelligence of the body and also knowing how to cool the energies of the body and really sitting with that process through the practice primarily of yoga postures. Pranaayama is the fourth limb, which is unrestraining the prana. We use different breathing techniques to help unrestrain the energy, uh, the energies in the body that flow through these meridians and through our skin and through our emotions and through our speech, and through our eyes, and through every, every 
sheath and corner of this uh, body. And um, then the fifth limb, pratyahara, which means the natural uncoupling of sense organs and sense objects. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> Most people translate this incorrectly as withdrawal of the senses. That's how I learned it for the first decade of my practice. Oh, yeah, withdrawal of the senses. And I would have this idea of, like, all my senses going, and, like, vacuuming in. And then I would walk around, like... Imagine if everybody withdrew their senses. <laughs> what kind of world would we live in? I, and I think this idea supports this notion of a monk who is divorced from our society. And I and actually would ask you to do this for homework, is think in your life of anyone you know or have known who is a monk or who is a yogi. And I would uh, encourage you to see that a monk or a yogi is somebody who is fully engaged in their society and in their neighborhood. I've never met somebody who practices full-time who is not totally engaged in their community. And I think the idea of a person in a cave is a colonialist idea of spiritual practice in Asia that is not really what it looks like on the ground. I mean, Burma is a perfect example. Um, when it was time for the Burmese monks to come out onto the street, everyone joined them. Why? Because they were, their lives are interrelated. They're not sequestered off in caves and in trees. Uh, and I always think these days there are no caves left anymore anyways. <laughs> They're filled with broken glass and, and squeegee kids. <laughs> Smoking hash. <laughs> Under the gardener somewhere. It's like the last cave is the gardener expressway. <laughs> Maybe they're doing deep monastic practice under there, actually. And great service. Mm. Um, it means that when we start cultivating equanimity and stillness, our sense organs, literally our sense organs, including our mind, stops chasing after sense objects. Imagine walking down the road and with your eyes treating everything that you see equally. This is what I love in film, right? Is, you know, someone holds a scene for long enough that what you thought you saw at the beginning uh, becomes something else. And then becomes something else. And then becomes something else. That you, you even can enter your loneliness long enough, or your anxiety long enough, that it's not loneliness or anxiety. That you can go deeper than this uh, phrase and really enter what's there. So this is pratyahara. And then the next limb is dharana, which uh, Patanjali also sometimes calls smurti, which means to remember, which is the word we translate into mindfulness, smurti, which means to, to pick an object of meditation and to come back to it. So you can anchor yourself. If, if we sit here and I say, follow your breath, 
How many people can follow their breath for more than two breaths? More than four breaths. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so we need an object of meditation. Uh, before I ever learned any technique, I would just sit down and look at a candle and just like think. You know? And then, like, and then you just get so tired because it's like you don't have any technique yet. So it's just your mind is just going into all the... And then after a while, it's really tiresome and kind of boring, actually. And you start to see that, that your mind only has a few different patterns it moves through. Not so many, really. Some of you who've ever worked in, in meditation practices where we do labeling, where you label what's happening, you know, thinking, planning... Sex, money, mum. Bar mitzvah. Um, uh, you start to see that you actually can't make more than ten tapes. There's only like ten loops. And for those of you who make art, you know, this is really where creativity gets shut down. Because you, you, you think you're open... And then you go to do your work, and, and it's everyone else's ideas, everyone else's paintings, everyone else's writing. And then you can't find your own voice, because there's no clarity. And so many artists come to meditation and get scared. Because they think, if my mind gets clear, then I'm not going to have any ideas. But the truth is, most of the ideas suck that you have, or they belong to someone else who's done that already. And all you're doing is trying to not plagiarize, really. Um, but the next phase is really how to get clear so that you know which idea is worth checking out. You know, I have about five ideas for books a day. And like, if I actually went with all of them, I'd be writing... I'd be so prolific and everything would suck, you know? <laughs> so how do you wait and have the patience to know when something arises that you can hold a space? Because it's a, it's a pool that is so easily polluted. If you come at it top down and go, oh, this is what this is. I'm going to write about that. It's going to look, oh, yeah. And this is the next book. And, and then there's no space for a character to have a life. Because you've decided already. So, so the same is true with ev everything that we do. Uh, and then imagine doing this with other people, like letting them have their own life. I mean, like learning the lesson of like the person that you started dating 10 years ago that you're living with now, it's not the same person. <laughs> Or the person you married 30 years ago that you're still with, it's not the same person. <laughs> People change. <laughs> Love is like this, I think. Like, you know, uh, Mike was just telling me before that he was listening to a talk I gave, you know, these, this week, I think, last year. And I talked about the Yoga Sutra and my son entering grade one. So then I had a story to tell you about my son entering grade two this year, but after he told me that, I can't tell you the story, because I realized I just repeat myself every talk that I give. 
um, maybe I need more clarity in my meditation so I can have some new ideas. Um, but my son a year ago, entering grade one, he's a totally different person entering grade two. So I had this whole idea this week about like what it was going to be like his first week at school, and it wasn't like that at all. And I kept saying, are you nervous? You know, How's it going? How are you feeling? How are you feeling about school? Was it good today? Did you have a good day? How was it? And, and he's just like rolling his eyes. <laughs> Can we just go do something? You know? How are you feeling? You know? So, so Dardana is coming back to what's in present experience and giving space to it. And I would say this is the core of peacemaking. Because without mindfulness, you can't see any of the Dharma. Actually, without attentiveness, all the other limbs just look like philosophy, the same philosophy you studied at university. It's not your life. It's separate from your life. It's an idea. And without that kind of attentiveness, the other Dharma doors don't open, whether there are eight or there are 84,000. That one, dharana, is the center. It's the center. And the next one is dhyana, which is when, when these teachings go to China, becomes the word chan, which then in Japan becomes the word zen, which means to be fully absorbed in an object. That means when you're meditating on the breath, eventually, for little moments at first, you're the... It, there's just breathing there. It's just breathing. And then the mind comes in and goes, Oh, this is what Michael talked about. This is just breathing. I'm just breathing. I'm really good at this. <laughs> and, and then the, the whole self story starts again, and then the world is born. Um, Muriel Ruckheiser says, uh, The world is not made of atoms, it's made of stories. And even the atoms that we think make up the world are stories about atoms making up the world. And so dhyana is when you slice through and you're one with whatever you're experiencing. And then this goes by another name, which is the eighth limb, which is called samadhi, which means integration. And is not, as many people think, a place or a state you get to. It's just the momentary touching of the non-dual experience of being one with what's there. And there are eight levels of samadhi, which I'm not going to go into tonight. But, but the word literally means sam, which is the same word in English as calm, like for community, and adi, one. To, to come together as one. Where there's no longer a subject and an object, there's one. The problem with samadhi is that you can't live there. You can't stay in samadhi. It's temporary. And that's why that limb turns back into the first limb, which is nonviolence. Taking action, doing something, but from a place of interconnectedness. And this is the practice that we do. And this is what we study year after year, and this is what you're going to study if you're new here, so that your practice and your life can be seamless. 
And um, it's even kind of fun, <laughs> believe it or not. Any questions before I keep going? Mm -hmm. I have only about five more minutes. What was the third limb? The third limb? Asana. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Which literally means to sit. To make your body into a throne. Yes. I always thought of um, dharana as concentration, but it's still kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's yeah. Like focus. Yeah. Getting into something. Yeah. Yes, you could call it concentration. That would be legal. <laughs> yeah. I've been trying to avoid the word concentration. Because it, it feels a little bit like you've got to like yeah, go do something. Yeah. Yeah. But what tends to happen actually is that when you have an object, like if the object, let's say, is just the breath, inhaling and exhaling, um, when you keep coming back over and over, so you hear a sound, cop car, Queen Street, the cave under the gardener, and you come right back again. And, but after a while, you've tr there's a training that's gone on, literally, neurologically. And then you start getting not so far away from the object. And then you're there. And then you're concentrated. Yeah. And then the eye maker freaks out and tries to hijack it somehow and goes, I'm concentrated. <laughs> So it's like there's concentration. Or it can also happen like just with any mood, like joy. So there's feeling of joy, and there's the samadhi of joy, like totally being in joy. And then the, the, the storyteller has a freak out and goes, I'm, I'm joyous. And this is what I think I, I mentioned last week, like with anger, you know, that what we're trying to do with all our emotions is to know them fully and selflessly, to really be in anger selflessly, to be fully in anger without me being there, and hopefully without someone else being there. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to read you a little koan. Or, or just mention a little koan. We studied this this summer, and uh, I think it really captures how this practice comes alive in our bodies. Um, Yunyan asked Dawu, oh, I should tell you who these guys are. Actually, some scholars think they were brothers, but I think they were more like Dharma brothers. Um, what I like about this, first of all, this little koan, um, I, have, I have a love for koans that are not teacher-student, but that are two practitioners uh, dialoguing with each other. Those are my favorite koans, uh, favorite dialogues. Um, Yunyan asked Dawu, how does the bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes? Some of you may have seen this image of uh, the deity of compassion with hands and 84,000, sometimes or 72,000, sometimes 10,000 hands. And in the center of each hand is an eye, which is a, you know, the great metaphor for all seeing. 
But the thing with these deities is everything they have on a limb is considered a tool. So this is a tool. Having an eye on your hand is considered a tool for being in the world. So this one brother asked the other, how does the deity, the bodhisattva of great compassion, use all those hands and eyes? Has anyone ever thought about that? I mean, what do you, like, how do you cook anything? (laughs) Um, And Dawu says, it's just like a person in the middle of the night reaching back for a pillow. This, This training we're doing, to use that word, is, is cultivating an instinct or allowing you to trust in an instinct of spontaneous creative engagement with anything, or what I like to call situational ethics, responding attentively and creatively without separation. And it's as, it's as instinctual as in the middle of the night just reaching back to adjust your pillow. Does anyone do this? In the, in the At night, I adjust my son. He crawls into bed with me and kicks me, and he gets adjusted all night. Um, Yunyan said, I understand. Do, you, do any of you have friends like this who don't practice, and you just tell them about the teachings? They're like, oh, I get it, I get it. I get it. <laughs> You should come sometime and, and actually try and sit. No, but I get it. I mean, I get the whole. I get the whole thing. No, no, no. But it's not like a like. You should actually come try and sit. No, 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 no. I get. It. I I have my own practice. That you know the workshop in the basement. I've got my own practice. You know. Um, so Union said, I understand, and Dawu won't let him off. And he says, How do you understand? How do you understand reaching back for the pillow in night? He says, um, all over the body are hands and eyes. All over the body. Not just here, but everywhere. There's hands and eyes. Imagine being this awake, that your body feels like there's hands and eyes everywhere. Some people feel their governments are like this. Um, Dawu said, what you said is okay about the hands and eyes all over the body, but that's only 80% of it. So frustrating being, you know, awake. <laughs> How do you understand it? Well, all over are hands and eyes, but, but that's only actually 80% of it. So he gets frustrated and says, Senior brother, how do you understand it? And he says, Throughout the body are hands and eyes. Do you hear the difference? Superficially on the outside are hands and eyes. But that's only 80%. The the core is you express it throughout the body are hands and eyes. Everything inside and outside simultaneously. We know this in the yoga postures. Some of you have been studying yoga postures for years and years where all we focus on is the superficial part of the pose. How to put your arm here and your leg here. And you never really learn about the patterns of the breath. You never really learn about where to put your attention. 
And so even though you, you, you get the physical benefits of the pose, you haven't been using the postures to really work with your mind, with your attention, with equanimity, with kindness. Um, we've just been on the outside. Or some of you are in the world trying to help and fix. Yeah? Just help, just seeing the outside. And that's why we use this term service, where we're not helping and fixing is a recipe for burnout. Has anyone here ever tried to help people? Be honest. Have you ever tried to help people? Has anyone here ever tried to fix someone? I actually haven't really tried helping people very much, but I've really tried fixing people. A lot of people I've tried to fix them. And not just fix them, but fix them perfectly. (laughs) When we serve, we don't need to help anyone. And we don't need to serve in a way that is trying to fix. We just serve in that moment because we're not separate. And it's much more creative because we don't have an attachment to an agenda. When I'm trying to fix someone, I have an unconscious idea of how they should be. It's amazing, you know, one time I taught a really large group of doctors and psychiatrists, psychotherapists, and I asked them to get together in circles and to come up with an idea. What is a healthy person? What's a healthy person? Because, I mean, there's all these people going and fixing and shrinking people. So what's the, like, so what are you trying to get them to be like? And I couldn't believe at the, just how diverse um, uh, the, the responses were and how much of it was about getting back to work. Mm-hmm. Trying to get people to get back to work. Sounds like Freud or something. <laughs> And uh, some of you might know, you know, Freud had this idea that, like, if you're still anxious at the end of the analysis, the cure is just to work. (laughs) Do something. (laughs) Which I I like that, actually. It's so so Austrian. Um, So anyways, we're not just acting with the hands and eyes on our body. That's fixing. And that's helping. It's that the hands and eyes are throughout the body. That we're not just peacemaking out there, but we're peacemaking also in here. And we're peacemaking here, and here, and there, and there, and there, and there. And the neighbor with the drill. I've been peacemaking with him. (laughs) And his son, you know, his son has a BB gun. But not the kind, like, kids' BB guns, but, like, he shoots holes in garage doors. So I said to him, you know, I've got this really bright light out here that the city... uh, could, Could you make it go away? And some of you might have not seen this light because... The day after I moved in, after I met him, we became friends because I thought I should know the guy with the gun. (laughs) And the light was out. (laughs) And then a couple weeks ago, the city came and they put this new light in with this 
excuse, poor excuse for a filter, so it doesn't shine in it. Uh, so anyways, I've been trying to get in touch with this guy's son and his beefing up. Um, but when I first saw him, I thought, like, what am I going to, this guy's shooting his BB gun all the time out there. And then I realized he could be my friend. And now we wave at each other and he shakes his gun. So, uh, I feel safe. I feel really safe. So the drill is like, no problem. Let me finish just by saying that this practice is not about getting somewhere, and it's not about postural niceties, walking around with a smile and, you know, projecting kindness. Um, this is hard work, and uh, it's not an easy path um, to really go deeply into what Patanjali and the Buddha and all these great peacemakers have offered us through their maps and their art. And can we pick up the art that they left us and really do something with it in a way that helps wake us up and also helps create uh, a culture of awakening, a civilizational matrix that is waking up through all its corners uh, whether it's ordaining trees or ordaining squeegee buckets. Imagine if all those, those buckets had little um, saffron robes on them and every time you saw one you... <laughs> and in doing so, like when we bow, it's not just that we're bowing to each other and to the sound of the bell and to the form that we're trying to uphold. But we're, in bowing, we're nourishing beginner's mind. We're, we're physically making our posture smaller than this upright, inflated form. And some of you who've traveled, you know, in most cultures, when you see someone, you make yourself smaller than them. We never do that here. We rose, we... <laughs> you know, really. And, uh, and we do business like this. And, um, and I don't think we should always bow either. Because, you know, when I watch the like, Academy Awards and all the actors are going namaste at the end, and, like the cultural appropriation flags are like up full. Um, but what will it be for us? to be able to nourish beginner's mind, not just through our hands and eyes, but through our whole body, our whole body, the gestures of our whole body um, as we move through this city um, and become engaged citizens um, that are also happy. So let's finish chanting.